Support the Amigos podcast and keep the Amiga goodness flowing for just a dollar a month. Visit our page at patreon.com slash Amigos podcast. Amiga, the first personal computer that gives you a creative edge. Amigos, the podcast about everything Amiga. Amigos is a proud member of the Throwback Network, your home for quality retro podcasts. And now, here are your hosts, Aaron Dowdy and John Bodokar Schaller. Hi everybody, welcome to the Amigos. I'm John. And I'm Aaron. And today we're going to talk about wings. Beautiful. But before we do, uh, I thought we'd talk a little hardware, Amiga hardware talk. All right, beautiful. What do you got? So have you heard of the GoTech floppy emulator before? I have heard of it. I have a vague idea what it's about. So uh, what this is, is uh, this is a device that allows you to connect uh, a USB stick into your, com- into your Amiga instead of using a, uh, a floppy drive. Mm-hmm. And it basically mounts inside that same port where your floppy drive did mount, you know, if you have a 500 or something like that. So it, it, you, it hooks into the floppy cable port right. on, the, on the motherboard. Exactly. Oh, okay. Um, and, uh, what it, and the great thing about it is that, you know, it's continually being updated. You can take this device out and you can flash it with newer firmware that has better support and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, not only do they make one for the Amiga, but if you buy like the extra special version, you get kind of cro- a cross-platform device where it'll work with an Amiga, a ST, an Amstrad, or a Sinclair. Oh, okay. So it's uh, surprisingly because it's a piece of uh, Amiga hardware, it's not that expensive. It's only about forty bucks. Really? Yeah. And um, you can also get uh, a cable to attach one of these to um, the same port where you'd hook up an external floppy drive. Oh, so, that would be handy. Yeah, that, that actually connects through the rear external DB23 interface port. Okay. And um, and it'll actually show up right on your workbench as DF1, you know, as an external floppy drive. Of course, the, there'd be limited, in, in the Amiga, there'd be a limited use uh, way to use it because since most things don't use that, D, you sure, most of the time you can't boot off the DF1, obviously, and then... A lot of games won't use it, so for gaming purposes, it probably won't be that great to do it that way. Right, but you know, if you're using different other you know utilities that that would require that second drive, or I guess if maybe you're you're even just loading up a game that were, you know you could load to you know just like on WinUAE, you can pop a couple discs in the different drives and uh, and use the switcher. That's a real good price. I'm now you're tempting me, Bo. Yeah. So uh, I just thought I saw that. Um, uh, do you have any hard any hardware this week? I've got a, I've got a few things, just a little hardware snippet uh, before we get into the news. Uh, you know, we t- talked about the uh, that vampire card. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it last week? The week before? Last week. Uh, for the uh, uh, six hundred that's that's uh, basically out. Uh, what a and what a fabulous look, uh, looking piece of hardware it is. Uh, but a lot of people don't have a six hundred. Again, in the U.S. was not a popular system. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. My my late great buddy Rich had one and. I tried like gangbusters to get it off of him, uh, but uh, I never did, and I don't know what happened to it. The uh, but he had one; he bought one and just kept it in the box. So it was. I mean, I don't think he, I don't know if he'd ever took it out because he had a he had a 500 as well, but he picked it up, you know. And when the 600 came out, I mean, like we discussed, it was sort of considered kind of a dud. 
because it was, you know, it, there wasn't enough innovation there yeah. to really make it worth your while. When we do our, uh, when we get around to doing the 600 with a proper hardware review, I've got some great articles about just the the nonsense <laughs> that was behind the development of this machine, uh, the management, the mismanagement of how, you know, this thing, it was conceived in a totally different, much cooler way. And what actually made it to market, as so often was the case with Amiga, was totally different than what was originally envisioned. I'm assuming cost cutting was was part yes, of that. Yeah, absolutely. The the funny thing is now, uh, and this is a segue into my hardware. But if you have a 600 now uh, with the appropriate uh, accelerator, like the Vampire, um, the 600's footprint is so nice. It's so tiny, and uh, and it, it looks it's a very good looking um, piece of hardware. That you could, if you had the power in it, you've got a real nice little, a nice item right there. Uh, but I thought, you know, along the uh, lines of the Vampire, uh, we've got our 500 here. I, I thought, I wonder what, if they've got any new advancements in uh, 500 accelerator technology. I just got to looking around. I uh, found a, uh, a uh, web page. It was actually a news blog, which we'll link it up. <clears throat> but uh, they talked about an item called the HC508. Amiga 500 accelerator card. Um, the uh, I'm not sure. I don't think this is commercially available anywhere yet. Um, in fact, the last update from the gentleman that's making it was in July, uh, and and was linked up to a video. But it looks like it's working pretty well, and the specs are very interesting. It's got a uh, uh, it, it fits on the side expansion slot. Okay, so that right there. You know, it's easy. Mm-hmm. Okay, just slide it right on. Right in. on. Exactly. It's got a 68 HC thousand CPU, and it's running at uh, 50 megahertz. I believe uh, this is a uh, an overclockable 68 thousand that they've cranked up to the nines. <coughs> Excuse me. Apparently, these run pretty cool. Um, so it's got it right there. You've got a 50 megahertz processor, and it's a hundred. According to the gentleman, it's a hundred percent. Uh, 68,000 compatible. So that's what you want, obviously, when you put something like that in a machine. Uh, here's the snazzy stuff that you get. 40-pin IDE connector built right on the slot. I mean, right on the uh, item. This would be great for a 500 user who doesn't have access to any sort of uh, easy-to-get-to uh, easy to ports for a hard drive or mm-hmm. a CD-ROM. Uh, integrated uh, compact flash card connector. Again, Having that in the IDE, huh, that'd be outstanding. That's a that's a dream scenario. Um, eight megs of fast RAM, a ton. You would be set to go. Um, you've got uh, the software that comes with it has uh, the ability to enable and disable every part of it. Oh wow! For compatibility purposes, that's great. It's got 512k flash ROM for Kickstart. Again. Awesome. If you have a 500, that's uh, well. I mean, you could presumably you could, you you could, could put you any could ROM upgrade, on there. Yeah. Presumably, yeah. Um, the uh, it's supposed to have real good seek times. I watched a video where uh, the gentleman uh, booted uh, up to uh, win, uh, Windows. Listen to me. Booted up to uh, Workbench. Uh, loaded up uh, Front Elite Frontiers. And if you've ever seen the opening to that, which is this really nice kind of a wireframe spaceship. Uh, scenario where a spaceship flies around and lands on a planet and it's in a space battle and it looks crisp uh, the guy says it runs at about uh, 40 to 45 frames per second which is 
very good because this was a you know, this was not the easiest thing to render back in the day. Uh, again, I've got no price on this. Uh, I could not find any information. This popped up on a news site uh, at the, like last week. I don't know if there's been progress on it. I, I couldn't find anything else. Uh, hopefully, this is something he's going to plan on releasing. I guess he's doing this now. I think this was the third revision. Uh, so, uh, but this would be a nice little card if the price was right. And uh, we're going to keep an eye on it. So, again, is it the vampire now? <laughs> but, of course, the vampire folks say that the uh, 500 will will get their chance eventually. You know, this uh, when you're developing new hardware for these retro machines, um, it can take a while. It's usually a one-man band. So, but hey, it's neat to see them, uh, you know, trying to develop this stuff. And the compatibility and the uh, expandability that something like that would give the 500 would be great. Yeah. So, now if they could just stick a... Uh, video out on it, <laughs> we'd, <laughs> we'd be, we'd we'd be, be laughing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got a new Amiga site, which may or may not be new, but new to me anyway, that I wanted to share. All right. This is a site called uh, gamescoffer.co.uk, and that's coffer like C-O-F-F-E-R, not like not your like demeanor in this, in, <laughs> in this day. Uh, so this is a, um, what I thought was unique about this, this is a, it's a game site. They've got a history page about the Amiga and stuff like that. But um, the, the person that is kind of uh, putting this together wanted to make a site where all of the ROMs that he listed were, uh, he got in touch with the original developers and, and got permission from them to list these ROMs. And I was like, well, he probably only got, you know, a couple on there. But really, he's got tons of ADF files on there. And presumably, you know, since he since he made that disclaimer, uh, they are all legit. And I noticed that Galaga Deluxe was on there. Um, and uh, there are some other the more heavy hitters. So uh, if you're interested in um, downloading some Amiga games that you don't have the originals of and you have somewhat of a conscience and you wanted to make sure that everything, you know, was, was above board, uh, check out gamescoffer.co.uk. There's a bunch of stuff on there. Great. That's great. And it's it's nice that the uh, foreign publishers and whatnot have put a lot of that stuff into the, you know, public, into the area of public domain. Right. You know, because some people are jerks. <laughs> They're never going to let it go, which I mean, I can understand. I guess it's not being too jerky, but, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. it's, it's nice to, and, you know, a lot of these guys are probably happy to have their old games played, you know. That's right. So. Right. Uh, any more news? Sure. Um, this came up uh, on a web page I occasionally will check out called Obligement, and I'll, we'll post a link. Uh, they're the guys handling the 2015 Amiga Game of the Year vote. Um, you can uh, log on to the site and vote, give your opinions on the best Amiga game. They've got categories for uh, the 68,000, uh, the Amiga OS 4.x, Morph OS, and AROS. Uh, and they've got a list of nominees. You can just pick, you know, I think you rank them uh, from favorite to least favorite. Um, I was telling Boat earlier that, uh, you know, it's amazing how many games uh, that looked interesting that came out last year. And so at some point in the not too distant future, we will probably devote a show to tackling some of these uh, newly made games and uh, seeing what we think, and I'm actually looking forward to it. I can tell you, if they're anything like Mr. Beanbag, I am excited. Yeah, I saw the video, and th- that did look like a great game. Yeah. How did you come across that one, Boat, if I may ask? Because I've not heard of that. Uh, it was on just, uh, boy, you know, <laughs> where did I find out about Mr. Beanbag? Through where, your travels and looking for news. <laughs> yeah, I, I must have been trawling some 
uh, you know, some Amiga news site and saw it come up, and I was like, Mr. Beanbag, that sounds like something I should play. Yeah, it looks like a lot of fun. It's uh, incredible that somebody, I mean, it's a real game. I mean, 40 levels, and they're quality levels. Uh, it, it, people just constantly <laughs> amaze me with their programming skill on, on the Amiga. Yeah, and it, well, and there's a lot, thankfully, there's a lot there to work with. Right? Yeah. Um, to, to summarize on this, on the finish up on this uh, voting, uh, the uh, the top the top three games of each of each system uh, will be well in this case each system means the uh, sixty eight thousand the the four dot x Morpheus and ARS will be revealed uh, Saturday February sixth uh, of this year so if you feel like going over and casting your vote if you're pretty into the uh, uh, current gaming scene on the Amiga go over and have a look at what they've got cast it up and uh, we'll uh, link it up uh, again you've got. It says they're going to reveal the uh, the winners February 6th. So I'm guessing you've got up to a, maybe a couple days before that. So I wouldn't hesitate too long before you went out there and cast your vote. Um, one more item. I, uh, I'm i always keeping up on the Defender of the Crown extended collector's cut um, uh, sale. The uh, guys over at Retro Cinema Wear, uh, Sven uh, being the gentleman we uh, interviewed a couple months ago, uh, this is sort of his baby. Uh, it looks like they have pushed back the delivery date on those in, uh, to uh, January slash February. Uh, it's changed. I think it's the first time I've seen it changed. I guess it got pushed back a month. Uh, I don't have any formal word from anybody on it. Um, it's uh, still there. Again, you've got a limit of 500, and it looks like they've already the pre-orders have already hit over over 250. It looks like they got about 238 in stock. I wouldn't hesitate too long. I'd say once they start shipping these, they're going to go quick. Um, and uh, like I said, from what we heard and what I've seen, it looks like a really nice uh, kit. I wish the uh, – I think one of the biggest problems they're going to have selling is just people trying to find the site. For, for whatever reason, it's, you, it's not linked off the Cinnabar right. site. You it's, know, I noticed the exact same thing the other day when I was looking at it for some, some other reason. <laughs> and I had to leave the site and just Google – uh, you know, Defender of the Crown remastered or something like that to get to the site. That's well, it's at retro.cinemaware.com, but there's no, I don't, I, I, there's no way to get to it if you just go to Cinemaware's normal site. And if you go to Cinemaware's site, which I go there once in a while, um, I don't think it's been updated for quite a while because mm-hmm. they're still talking about the Kickstarters and stuff. Um, and maybe there's no way to update it. I don't know the situation, but uh, boy, I would be linking off that mm-hmm. if you want some action on something like this. I would say the majority of people still have no idea this exists. Yeah. You know, they listen to us or another podcast that's covered it, which I've never heard one say anything about it. Um, you know, and this seems like something to be big news. I've tried to spread it around as much as I can just because I thought people would be interested. Uh, but uh, uh, I would, if I was one of the guys, if one of the guys from CinemaWare Retro is listening, I'd link that up and I'd do it quick. Yeah. You know, you'd get a lot more action. Yeah. That's all I got. All right, well, we might as well keep talking about Cinemaware titles because this week's Game of the Week is Wings. <laughs> yes, the Cinemaware title. <laughs> so Wings is, uh, you know, it is a part of a proud tradition of uh, World War I uh, flight simulators uh, that uh, started, I guess, with uh, Blue Max. Blue, <laughs> it, there are, it is very, some parts of this are very Blue Maxian. Um it was released in 1990, uh, of course, developed and published by CinemaWare. And um, it is probably one of the more, uh, you know, you, you think about, if you were going to describe this game, 
you'd call it, you know, an arcade-style shooter. But it's so much more than that because of the trappings, the Cinemaware trappings. And we'll go into that a little bit later on when we, when we dig deep into Wings. But, um, you know, don't be fooled by the, uh, the descriptor if you're just, you know, reading uh, Lemon Amiga or something like that. Uh, this, this, is a, this is a deep game. Uh, what do you have on the? Uh, do you have anything about the the development team on this one? Sure, um, it's the, a lot of the same uh, Cinemaware guys we know and love. Uh, <clears throat> to start off, Cinemaware company you all know and love. We talked about a lot of their games. They did. It came from the desert. They did Defender of the Crown. They did. Uh, you know, Three like, Stooges. Three Stooges. They did TV, TV sports. sports, basketball, baseball. You know, football, uh, boxing. They did uh, a lot of games that are well-known, including some we've went over on the show. Sinbad, it's another one. Um, so a lot of the same uh, fellas that work on a lot of these work on this. Uh, it was designed by John Cutter. Of course, I, you know, he's been, he's done a lot of them. Uh, his note, of, uh, pretty much a lot of his stuff was, almost all of his stuff was, <laughs> was Cinemaware stuff. Uh, he did boxing. He did Defender of the Crown. Uh, he did basketball, King of Chicago, Lords of the Rising Sun, Rocket Ranger, another great one. Uh, Sinbad, you know, pretty much almost all their titles <laughs> Cutter worked on. Uh, uh, they also had Jerry Albright. Uh, again, he worked on a lot of the sports titles for Cinemaware. A fellow called Tim Hayes, this was his only game. Uh, and a, another fellow called Dan Pinel. Again, he worked on this and TV Sports Basketball, so he had a good run if you aren't going to do two for design. This was created by, uh, well... They've listed the, the Jacobs as the creators, which is the Jacobs are the big wigs at Cinemaware. Blake and Jake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's Robert and Phyllis. Okay. Um, if you're familiar with Cinemaware, they were the they were the they were Cinemaware. They started somewhere. Um, <clears throat> they you know, you can pretty much list everything they've been involved in some capacity. I saw a, 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 a Matt chat, if you're familiar with this fella. He uh, uh, Matt is a guy that used to work for uh, oh, what's the name of that uh, one of the retro sites, it's, it, the name's failing me right off the top of my head, but he does uh, video chats with these old uh, producers and designers and game guys. He did John Cutter uh, in one of these, and I you know, flipped through it and watched it. I recommend this guy, by the way. His Matt chats are always good. He's a, he's a good interviewer. But uh, Cutter said that when uh, Jacob came in, he said, listen, he goes, I've seen a lot of stuff being done with 3D, and I think this would be a good platform to do a World War One game. So, you know, make that happen. And John Cutter said he was not happy about this revelation. That he was, he, but he had his walking orders. So there was no internet. He went to the library and uh, pulled up a book and uh, started looking through the uh, looking through the pages of, and trying to get in the whole World War One thing. And by the time he was finished, he was reading about, you know, Eddie Rickenbacker and, and Ball and Rick Toven and all the stuff that happened when he was excited as hell to get the game out he, he he turned the corner and they really went into this project um with in with, in their mind to do the best job they could to portray what it was like to be a pilot in world war one uh, so that's how they put the game together they didn't just want to have they didn't just want to have uh blowing stuff up rambo style they wanted a they wanted something with heart that could tell a story and give someone the feeling that they were involved in an actual long-standing battle. Right. You know, and that's and that's pretty much what they did. I think they did a good job with it. Um, anyway, to go down the line, uh, this was produced by 
uh, David Reardon, another Cinemaware guy, did uh, baseball. He did he did uh, the sequel to It Came From The Desert. It's funny, a lot of guys that worked on this, for whatever reason, worked on the It Came From The Deserts. So, <laughs> which we haven't covered those yet. Uh, they were unique, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Um, the uh, uh, Another producer was Jerry Albright. Again, he did a lot of sports titles and wings. So that's, that's the connection. It came from the desert and the sports titles. Uh, the coder was Tim Hayes. He worked on, guess what, the sports titles, and it came from the desert, Rocket Ranger. Graphics, uh, Jeffrey Hilbers. He did, he did the, uh, it came from the desert, it's King of Chicago. The musician, which the music in this game is quite good. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it's quite popular. It's very, I, I've seen it covered by a lot. Of, I couldn't believe I, I looked on YouTube and everyone was doing this music. It's very evocative of the time. <clears throat> it is, absolutely is. Uh, the musician was a gentleman named uh, Gregory Haggard. He did Wings, and he did the, it came from the deserts. Bam. He did uh, the, the um, Dukes of Hazard theme, too, right? <laughs> That's Merle Haggard. Oh, okay. You've lost your mind, <laughs> Um and the, another, and the other gentleman that worked the music, Ken Melville, this is the only game he worked on. Um, I read somewhere, this, in fact, I read this on Cinemaware's page, and I didn't have this guy listen, but I thought it was an interesting little tidbit. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. It said one of the writers in this was a guy named Ken Goldstein, Okay. Now, I didn't see his name pop up anywhere. This is the only place I saw it was on CinemaWare's website, so I'm going to take it for what it was. But according to what they had here, uh, he joined as right, uh, He joined this uh, outfit to, to write on Wings, fresh off his success as being writing supervisor on NBC's Hill Street Blues. Wow. And Hill Street Blues is one of the best written shows of all time. I love Hill Street I, Blues. I haven't watched that much of it, but I've seen a few. I don't know if this is something that anyone in any other countries are going to know Hill Street Blues was a was a cop show and and the the things that they did with Hill Street Blues we can go on a tangent you know back in the 80s this was early 80s you know you couldn't have you know it wasn't like the wire you couldn't have cursing you couldn't have a lot of things that people have now and to be able to write a show and make it seem real with the constraints that they had to work with at that time i mean that's that really shows a lot about the pedigree of this game that he worked on that well um Again, assuming he that he was involved in the writing at, at a high degree, mm-hmm. I, I, let's put it this way: whoever wrote this, they were very poignant. They uh, they were very historically accurate. I've also read that they, if you read the manual uh, for this game, uh, the first paragraph basically says this is not a game; this is a simulator, and this is as historically accurate as possible. In fact, well, I'll flip over here to the manual because actually printed it out and I thought this was actually this sort of the way this was written is is well done I'm just gonna read a little bit of the introduction Uh, it says wings is an interactive movie Uh, wings is not an interactive movie nor could it be called a military flight simulator yet it combines the elements of both to create an interactive experience this is the part that I think is really interesting Um, the game is historically accurate whenever possible the DOS Rittmeister character that you meet at the end of 1916 is fictionalized, as well as the 56th Aero Squadron itself, which represents a typical American, English, or French fighter unit. The real 56th Squadron was an elite unit made up of top pilots of England. They traded flight tactics and tested the new SE-5s before returning to their units to share the newly acquired knowledge. So, aside from that, they pretty much stay right in the timeline of the First World War. 
Uh, I, I checked around just to see. <clears throat> and, yeah, I mean, it was they did a good job. The dates and stuff, they all fleshed out the ones I checked. Uh, and I think that helps, helps add to the uh, ambiance of the game. You get, a, you get a feel of what was happening in the war at that time. I guess we should probably explain the game. You want to explain exactly what the game is a little bit before we get well, into it. Well, in the in the game, you know, you're you're greeted at the the beginning. You can enter your name, and uh, the first thing you have to do is earn your wings. And uh, so this is kind of like you know pilot school. Uh, you are tasked to uh, complete uh, one or two of the different th- the three different missions that are available and uh the mission types are you can it's like a first person perspective you're flying the plane it's actually an over the shoulder first person perspective Mm. uh and you've got to knock down a weather balloon in the training mode uh the second one is you have a bombing uh you have a bombing assignment where you have to bomb certain targets on a map as you're flying over it in a 1942 or 1943 kind of arcade uh, perspective where you're looking at the top down. Uh, the third mission type is a isometric uh, kind of pseudo 3D like Xevious or Blue Max uh, shooter. Uh, you are not tasked to earn your wings by doing this because in the actual thing, I mean, you're literally killing people uh, blowing up, you know, moving targets, and uh, you're never asked to earn your wings in that particular uh, setting. But uh, the first two you are. So uh, say that you pass the first two missions, they're very easy training missions. Uh, you immediately uh, jump right into the war. Uh, March you, 6, 2000, or 1916, that's the day you start. And uh, as far as I know, uh, what they have is they have five or six different kind of starting scenarios uh, because whenever I'd restart, I wouldn't get things in the same order that uh, as I always did. And so uh, you get a scenario that's written down. You have music playing behind you. Um, and uh, then you're off to your mission. And, uh, you know, the scenarios aren't just, you know, destroy enemy fighters. Uh, these are little kind of novellas that, that tell you what's going on. They, they you, You're allowed to see the personal side of both your pilot and your commanding officer, as well as other people in your squadron. Yeah, you're you're uh, when you join a squadron, uh, you become the squadron's uh, basically their bibliographer. You're the guy writing the every month. You keep a log every every mission. Basically, you'll have a log entry, and, and you're reading the entry. Uh, for the first one, I remember it vividly because uh, the pilot talks about moving into his new headquarters. And then he talks about he wishes how he could have slept well the night before because he was so scared he couldn't sleep. And now he's tired and he's going to go out in his first sortie, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, there's you know. another one where he's talking about he didn't want to go up on, you know, he he hadn't he hasn't eaten much breakfast. He had some bad coffee, you know. Yeah. But he doesn't he wa- he doesn't want to go up there with a full stomach. And <laughs> so it it really kind of um, it makes the game personal in a way that most other games aren't. Yeah, and and what, something I like is occasionally. It's not all gloom. Sometimes your guy will go and leave. Sometimes there'll be pictures. There's one where they put a snowman up and they they make it. They put a German helmet on it and they and they throw a snowballs at it. And they're, you know, or no, they shoot it with a the gun. That's right. They're talking that's right. about target practice. Then there's, a lot, there's lots of ones where they make fun of their commander or mm-hmm. he doesn't say something about the commander. And then sometimes some of the people in the stories get killed. Yeah. You know. Uh, something else I liked about it is, I mean, there's a lot of like the hun this. We're gonna get the hun. But a lot of it is they respect the enemy to a certain a lot in certain some cases. Uh, There's one scenario where they find a uh, a German plane patrolling alone, 
and they were going to just let it go because it didn't engage. But then it engaged them in battle. And of course, they had to dispatch it. Uh, something else I like is when you once you show once you read your uh, your diary page or your log, there'll be a cutscene of of the plane taking off, and then the game at that point the game will load, and then when it, what happens is like a um, a movie style card will appear on the screen, uh, and it'll have more information about the current mission. You know, but it's presented in like a way like you would see in an old silent film, sort of like which Wings was a you know movie from that era. But it's it's a cinema card. It's written out there, and then you'll hit your button, and then mission will start. But you get a little more flavor there. Mm-hmm. The the diary is more about what's building up to the mission, and then the card is like what's happening immediately. You know, what am I doing? How's my guy feeling? What is the situation? Sometimes it's important. Uh, it'll say, hey, we see. You know, four. We see four enemy planes. We didn't expect that many. We've only got two guys, or you know, there's a guy on my, you know, coming up on my tail. I mean, anything. Their scenarios can change, and uh, that really adds the spiciness of it as well. Right. Um, you know the the things that I thought <laughs> the the first person, the over the shoulder first person dog fighting stuff. Yeah. It's amazing that that's a game from 1990. I know it's incredible. It it's runs really incredible. super smooth. The action is fast. <laughs> you get a sense of the speed of the planes. Uh, the enemy planes circle and they do things. You know the AI is very good. Yeah. Your guys' planes do things that are good too. And it's just amazing. You know you'll be watching from afar across the field and you'll watch your your buddy's plane get shot down or you'll watch your buddy shoot down a German plane and it'll circle. You know it'll it'll slowly. You know, crash and the graphics are just outstanding on on that. It's it's truly it is truly amazing. Now, this is going to run better or worse depending on what you're what you've got. You know, um, it runs smooth as silk in the twelve twelve hundred uh, emulator. Of course, it's going to run perfectly well. Uh, it, some people thought it was a little jerkier on the you know some of the slower machines, but it was definitely playable. I mean, I played this thing on a plain Jane one thousand as slow. You know, which I had a little bit of memory. That's it. It played, I thought it played fine, but I've heard people complain about it. The uh, the dogfighting stuff, it, it is outstanding. What I liked about it was, I'm not a flight simulator guy. Some people are. This was perfect for a guy like me. There was no keyboard commands unless you want to look around. And you you use the joystick to just run around, and the button shoots, and you could just follow your guy's head. And he would turn, he would turn left or right, depending on where an enemy fighter was. Right. And sometimes it's an, it's an ingenious way it is. to show that without any kind of a radar. Yes, or yes. Because yeah. this screen is free of any sort of gauges. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no fuel gauge. There's no ammo gauge. You're just a guy. I love the simplicity because these guys were in glorified kites. If you think about it, the plane had only existed for about, what, 15, 20 years? Maybe before. not even that Yeah, long. and, then, yeah. and these guys were up here fighting in these things. And it was all brand new. It was crazy time. And so... They wouldn't have had a bunch of fancy gauges and stuff. These guys were just up there, had their wits, you know. Yeah. But when you know your guy will turn his head, his scarf's flapping, and uh, when you're getting shot, bullets will appear, you know, on the underside of your wings, and you can see them, you know, on the top wing, so you know, hey, I'm damaged. Mm -hmm. You know, Uh, occasionally your guns will lock up. Right, you know, you'll have to fly around just defenseless until and it's, you're yes, free again. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can actually, you can land. Uh, really? You can. I don't know if you ever tried that. No, you can I land never tried. on the ground, and basically you're giving up the scenario. 
Now you have to land. You can't because you can also crash. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of times, if you get killed, uh, in fact, every time, if you get shot and you've got poor guy's head limps down, you just sp- and, and you have to sit there. There's nothing you can do, and you spiral down and hit the ground and explode. It's mm-hmm. sad. And there's a scene where that shows you burying your guy. Uh, but uh, yeah, you can land if you if you have to or if you want to. It's not something I was happy about, but you could do it. And but I mean, they didn't like it. And I think three three or four sc- missions where you screwed up in a row, and that counted as screwing up. Also, missing your targets in the bombing run was a screw up. Shooting ambulances and uh, hospital tents, three or four of those, and they kick you out. Mm-hmm. You know, you get discharged and you have to start again. Now, let me ask you this: I played this. My best game, I probably completed five or six missions. Mm-hmm. I never once had a bombing mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, I only had the uh, Zevius style strafing, right, or the the first person. So, <laughs> uh, how many missions do you have to play? Do you think before you get one of those, or is it totally random? Bom- I don't think any of the game. I didn't think any of the game was random. I'll be honest with you. I thought it was all in a precise order. Uh, I think because when you and when you die, you pick up. Right at the next mission. Oh, I didn't realize that. Um, bombing, that's the least, that's the the one that occurs the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, bombing, I'll, again, I like all the mini games. Bombing is probably the most infuriating because it was, I always had trouble getting the bomb to go out exactly right when I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, But, you know, bombing is pretty simple. You've got to avoid anti-aircraft and, uh, and just try to drop your bombs. And occasionally you'll see a plane come out. The uh, uh, strafing, it's sort of, it's sort of uh, sad <laughs> because you're, you know, it's it's one thing when you're shooting a guy in, in a plane, but I mean you're gunning down <laughs> right. These guys don't stand a chance, and you're yeah. and you're just gunning down hundreds of people, <laughs> and everybody's running from you too. You know that all yeah, the people are going in the opposite back. Direction. They can shoot you, and and, uh, and eventually you could lose in that one as well. Uh, I, those two are both good. I, like I said, for me, I like the dog fighting the best. And sometimes it's and they they vary it. Sometimes it's dog fights, sometimes it's balloon busting. Sometimes you're protecting a balloon. Sometimes you're protecting a uh, a bomber. You know, sometimes you protect stuff. Uh, they vary it up nicely. This is one of those games you probably think to yourself, "Well, after two or three, I'm gonna get bored." I've played this game all the way through several times, all the way to the end. I've got a guy with like 178 kills. I'm wow, like, Dick Rude was my guy. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, you know. It's, it, I'm not gonna lie. There were a few times where I'd hit Control Alt Delete real quick when the, when the deal went south <laughs> on me, but uh, or Control Alt Delete. There I go again. Control Amiga, Amiga. But uh, um, it's a great game, and the reason it def- doesn't get old is because it, it varies in the gameplay, plus the diary, the movie cards. It's a beautiful package. Uh, you know, it's two discs, so there's not a ton of swapping. Uh, it was hard drive installable right out of the gate back in the day so you could install this one if you wanted to and uh you know there's really there's no score and <laughs> really even when you that you you win quote unquote when the war ends and even the last mission is sort of poignant because you're on your last sortie you know you see another guy there's no reason for you guys to fight but it just seems like it just seems like the the thing to do, and you mm-hmm. go down. I mean, he does he doesn't revel in it, you know. It's funny when sometimes he'll be like, "Yeah, I took down four hun." He'll be, but a lot of times he's solemn about it. And often, or if all his uh, if all your buddies get killed, you know, a lone warrior returns home. It's a sad thing, and then they'll show a in between missions. They show like a cl- a billboard or a 
uh, it's a pin board, a stick board, and they'll have the guys crossed out and mm-hmm. all these aces that are up there are getting killed. And I, <laughs> I think it's really funny because in the game there are one of two statuses that you can have, mm-hmm. okay or dead. <laughs> And so that's that's all the ones that I saw. So, you know, you come back from your mission and it might say, you know, your status is okay, and then your buddy, his status is dead. You know, I used to watch a show called Black Adder. Uh, I love this show, but it, it had a term I'd never heard until I watched an episode. It was an episode when, I don't know if you've ever seen this show. I've never seen it. I've heard many people talk about it. It was historically based, uh, it's, com- it's comedy, mm-hmm. but there was one season, Black Adder the Fourth, where it was took place during World War One. And Black Adder decided to join the Flying Corps. And they called him the 20 Minuters. And it's the first time I'd ever heard that. And that's because, and this is a real term, the average lifespan of a new pilot was 20 minutes. Wow. So you had to have a lot of guts to even get anywhere near one of these airplanes, much less go into combat with them. And so, and that's another thing about the game. It doesn't pull any punches. <laughs> You're no. done. When you yeah. die, like I said, you just basically spiral in and then you die. Mm-hmm. You have to register a new character, earn your wings <laughs> all over again. Now, I didn't realize that they jumped you right back into whatever mission you were at. And you can't even use the same name again. No, no. It will tell you. You cannot use this name. <laughs> so so it's, it's a real bummer. But uh, just a great game. A few things about it. Excuse me. The uh, I didn't know this, and I've played this game a million times. There's cheats for this game. It's, really? Yeah. If you hold down uh, control, left shift, and left alt, and use the right and the right mouse button, right mouse, right mouse button, and you click, use the left mouse button to click uh, on on letters in wings, the you know the logo. Uh, you can toggle the music on and off. You can have auto fire with the caps lock. Probably would have been handy. Uh, one where you can skip flight school, and then I'm not sure. Oh, there's one that lets you save the game without exiting. Oh. <coughs> and then another thing I, I saw, cheat-wise, there's when you're in the flight school menu, there's a plane on top of the screen. If you click on the bullseye in that plane, um, the, the the screen will flash, and it'll ask you if, if you want to uh, if you want to uh, quit or something like that. And you just hit no. And then if you if you type in the new pilot, Orca the Killer Tomato. <laughs> Uh, it, it'll, it'll recognize you. It says your plane is fueled and ready to go. <laughs> and then you get uh, a super pilot, basically. Oh, wow. Now, I went out and got the super pilot killed in my first mission. <laughs> but uh, um, And there's another another thing you can type in called, uh, it, you type in, who is the Riddler? And uh, uh, it gives you some kind of hidden menu. I didn't get to try that one. I love stuff like that, you know, <laughs> little Easter eggs. I agree. Um, the uh, I had a look around on eBay, as I do. The uh, this game was surprisingly uncommon. Apparently, um, there was two people selling one right now in the U.S. asking price one hundred and twenty-five bucks. Uh, they might get it. I looked, and some had sold up in that area. Now there are some overseas that I saw going for sixty-five bucks, forty to fifty bucks. You know, in that area, but uh, there weren't a lot. I saw a guy, and I looked over the last couple months. There haven't been very many of these sold. So if you've got hold of this, you're sitting pretty. Uh, it's a, it's something you're not going to, which I thought they'd be tons around. Right. You know. Um, you got anything else on this one? Well, um, the game uh, reviewed very well. <laughs> um, in uh, 1993, uh, Amiga World ran, of course, in 93. We're almost getting towards the end of the uh, Amiga's life. 
Uh, they rank Wings third on their list of all-time Amiga games. Yes. Uh, you know, the game, out of all the reviews that I saw, you know, it never scored below an 80 or so. Um, and uh, the game was ported to the Game Boy Advance. Uh, the game, It was ported in, um, where is that? 2002, I think. I think you're right, yeah. Um, and uh, and basically, there were a couple small changes, but uh, it, uh, it's uh, the biggest <laughs> difference is that you can actually opt to fly missions as the Germans. Have you played this? I have not played it. I, I didn't have. know it existed. I oh, have okay. played it. Uh, it's pretty good. It's, it's weird to play on the German side. Now, I, I, honestly, I don't think it's as good as the Amiga version, but um, it's uh, and it's different. But it's good, and it was a true sequel, in a, you know, sort of. Mm-hmm. You know, it was sequel-ish. The other game that was out on the, I think it was a Super Nintendo, uh, I think it was called Wings 2 Aces High. Does that sound like oh, something? Oh, boy, that sounds like something yeah, that I've seen Yeah, I got it right before. here. Wings yeah. 2 Aces High uh, was a uh, quote-unquote sequel to Wings, unofficial, uh, but the Wings branding was only in the United States, the European version was called Blazing Skies. Uh, I actually saw this and played it, too, because I was like, ooh, goody, Wings 2. Mm-hmm. I did not like Wings 2. <laughs> <laughs> and CinemaWare had nothing to do with it, and it's an unofficial sequel. Mm. Uh, I don't know how, the, I don't know if they acquired the license to even put, you know, to put Wings 2 on there. I, I couldn't find anywhere that said they had. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what they did. Uh, the, uh, it, not my bag. Personally, yeah. it's. I mean, when you grow, I up remember growing, seeing that game. You know, renting. You know, as you did back then. You went in, and, and, but I never rented it. Right, right. I can. Well, I can understand why. Good move. <laughs> um, now, uh, of course, you know the the next thing we should probably talk about is the newest version of Wings, which is very new. Um, <laughs> Wings remastered. Uh, this was a Kickstarter that officially launched uh, in August of 2012. And uh, what they wanted to do was recreate Wings in HD for uh, the you know contemporary platforms, you know mobile platforms and PCs. Um, and uh, the the first uh, Kickstarter launched, they wanted to uh, raise three hundred and fifty thousand dollars to get this thing off the ground. I remember when that came out, the very first one. Um, it was unsuccessful by a lot. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> uh, they managed to raise about 50 grand. I think I pitched on that one. That's one of the few I've actually went in on. So what they did was, in the grand tradition of all Kickstarters everywhere that fail, they say, hey, maybe we don't need as much money as we thought. Let's relaunch this thing for um, you know a smaller amount. And uh, it ended up being successful. They earned $91,000. And uh, they were able to release the game. <laughs> Uh, it was released uh, for Windows and Mac in October of 2014, and it's available. It still continues to be available uh, on Steam. Good old games. Yep. Um, and uh, it's also uh, available for Android and iOS. It came out in May of last year for those platforms. Which I have not seen it there. Now I, I actually I've mentioned this in a previous show. I actually have this. I got it on Steam, and I hate everything. I hate when people redo stuff. I hate when they remake films. I hate when they reboot stuff, but I'm going to tell you, this is an outstanding job. It is. I was blown away, frankly. They stuck to the original uh, to an unbelievable degree. They did all the things you should do. They they improved the graphics. 
They improved the graphics engine, as you can imagine. This is many, many years later since ninety, you know, since it was released. Uh, they added voice. They added speaking to the uh, to the diary. The, someone actually speaks the, you know, the words are still there, but they actually read them. Narrated. They made a few tweaks to the overall, uh, the uh, the overall way it looks in terms of the way, like for example. Uh, Bombing and strafing, or there's a little tweak. There's, there, these are minor things that you that help the game. They put nothing in here that I did not like. All the things that they had added, I thought were great. It looked great, it played great, and it played just like the original. And you can use your same, <laughs> your same moves. It, the funny thing about this game, I'll go into that for a second. Uh, when they were making this game, these guys didn't screw around. They went to uh, the San Diego. Uh, I think it's the Air and Space Museum, uh, and they got everything they could on World War One pilots, the wars, the dogfights, and they put together that I think it came with the actual game was an eighty-page booklet on flying, effectively. <coughs> Excuse me. And so loop the loops and half turns and all these crazy names, these maneuvers work. I mean, that's they're there to work. And so moves that I would do in the original game. In the new version, I could do the same move, and it still worked just like it's supposed to. You know, you know, a half loop with a twist to try to get off a guy off your back, or diving real quick to get speed, and then doing a loop to try to circle around your opponent's, you know, around his back end. It worked. Uh, I can't recommend the new one enough. Um, I don't know how well it did, uh, but I know occasionally you can get it on Steam for a really good price, mm-hmm. and uh, boy, I, I would buy it immediately. <laughs> I mean, especially if you're a fan of the old game and you haven't got it now, you don't have an Amiga. You don't want to emulate it. This this is this will uh, this will do it for you. This will fill that void. Awesome. Uh, well, we'll take a look at that. We'll try and take a look at that as well as the um, as well as the original. Who knows? We may even look at the Game Boy Advance version. Yeah. Uh, check us out on the uh, on YouTube. We'll we'll get that up. And um, I just want to before we wrap things up, Aaron, <laughs> do you have anything else on Wings? Well, you know, I was not to get too mushy about this. And I told Bud I was going to say a little something about World War One in general. Because we do a lot, we've done the cannon fodder, and we did. This. I think this is another game that was on the ban list in Germany. Which North and South, I'd be surprised if that made it through. Well, it's not about Germany though, so that might make it. I don't know. It's got a lot of killing in it. Well, yeah, you're Rack right. Violence. Um, you know, uh, this game ends on the last day of the war, Armistice Day, and uh, I was just just for I don't know. I was looking at work, just researching the war a little bit, and. It's funny to read that to when you play a game like this, and this is one thing I like about Wings, and it's the reason I thought about it was because of the way Wings presented the war. Uh, it does not glorify battle. It does not glorify the killing of other men. Uh, and it does not glorify um, dropping bombs on people. Uh, you're penalized for shooting hospital uh, tents and shooting ambulances. Uh, it tries to show you that what you're doing was pr- the best you, you could do in a situation that was like hell. Uh, the uh, I was reading a, 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 an eyewitness account on the end of, of, the, uh, of the battling. And this is something uh, taken uh, straight, from the, straight from the battle the last day. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, a gentleman called Colonel Thomas Gowan Locke uh, relayed this message, wrote it down, and it's been handed down. Uh, I'm just going to read it just a, just a few minutes and then just to put things in perspective on how bad this battle was. Uh, on the morning of November 11th, I sat in my dugout 
in Laguaw Fall, which was again our division headquarters, talking to our Chief of Staff, Colonel John Greeley, and Lieutenant Colonel Paul Peabody. A Signal Corps officer entered and handed us the following message. Official radio from Paris, 6.01 a.m., November 11, 1918. Marshal Faux to the Commander-in-Chief. Number one, hostilities will be stopped on the entire front beginning at 11 o'clock, November 11th, French hour. Two, the Allied troops will not go beyond the line reached at that hour on that date until further orders. Signed, Marshal Faux. Well, fini la gloire, said Colonel Greeley. It sure looks like it, I agreed. Do you know what I want to do now, he said? I'd like to get on one of those horse-drawn canal boats in southern France and lie in the sun for the rest of my life. My watch said 9 o'clock. With only two hours to go, I drove over to the bank of Masu River to see the finish. The shelling was heavy, and as I walked down the road, it grew steadily worse. It seemed to me that every battery in the world was trying to burn up its guns. At last, 11 o'clock came, but the firing continued. The men on both sides had decided to each to give each other all they had farewell to arms. It was a natural impulse after years of war, but unfortunately many fell after 11 o'clock that day. All over the world on November 11, 1918, people were celebrating, dancing in the streets, drinking champagne, hailing the armistice that meant the end of the war. But at the front, there was no celebration. Many soldiers believed the armistice only, temp- only a temporary measure that the war would go on soon. As night came, the quietness unearthed unearthly in its penetration, began to eat into their souls. The men sat around their log fires, the first time they'd ever had one at the front. They were trying to reassure themselves there were no enemy batteries spying on them from the next hill and no German bombing planes approaching to blast them out of existence. They talked in low tones as they were nervous. After the long months of intense strain of keying themselves up daily for a daily mortar round, of always thinking in terms of war and the enemy, the abrupt release from all, from all, from it all was physical and psychological agony. Some suffered total nervous collapse. Some, of a steadier temperament, began to hope that someday they could return home the embrace of their loved ones. Some could only think of the crude little crosses that marked the graves of their comrades. Some fell into an exhaustive sleep. All were bewildered by the sudden meaninglessness of their existence as soldiers. And though... Their teeming memories paraded that swiftly moving cavalcade of contingency. What was to come next? They did not know and hardly cared. Their minds were numbed by the shock of peace. The past consumed their whole consciousness. The present did not exist, and the future was inconceivable. Which I think that pretty much sums up any war, but I thought that was... I never thought about what it was like on Armistice in those pits and those uh, uh, trenches... When it all went down, uh, but it would be amazing to go from all-out battle to complete, full and utter stop. Yeah, bad times. Yeah. So yeah, I know that was a little weird for us, but you know, war sucks. <laughs> and so <laughs> if you, you take sh- one thing from this episode, uh, yeah, I, I I don't know what else to say. But thank you mm. for reading that. That was that was great. Um, I want to thank our sponsors before we get out of here. Uh, our sponsors are uh, O'Brien's Retro and Vintage. Uh, Brent Dowdy and Chad Halstead, so we appreciate them. Uh, as always, if you'd like to support the podcast, uh, check out our page over at patreon.com slash amigos podcast. Um, and uh, next week, we are going to get back to uh, our our platforming wheelhouse with uh, one of the uh, 
Best looking games on the Amiga. Uh, we're going to do Lionheart next week. We've, we had a, a start and stop on this one a, a couple months ago, but we're raring to go now. Yeah, Lionheart was going to be maybe even episode two. It was early, videos. yeah. Uh, and uh, I ran into some emulation trouble, uh, but we've got that resolved. And so uh, look for that next week, Lionheart. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. And uh, until then, adios. adios.